0: Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Jha and Adam Brewer.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. This week, there were several high-profile Twitter slash X accounts that were hacked by crypto phishing type organizations and among them were some pretty big ones like Mandiant which is the security firm purchased by Google and the security exchange commissions the SEC and initially Mandiant had said that there was MFA protecting the account but then after their investigation they said hey it was a brute force attack and if you know what a brute force attack is A lot of security researchers on Twitter were like, hey, if you're saying it's a brute force attack, that means that you didn't have MFA enabled, and it probably also was a fairly weak password. And then, of course, they said, yes, there wasn't MFA, and they were in the state of transitioning teams for that particular account, and so they didn't have it. The SEC also didn't have MFA, and now some of the... Senators and congressmen are wanting to do an investigation into why the SEC didn't have MFA on their X account. So I thought it would be good to have a discussion on how to protect social media accounts from a corporation standpoint, because this is something that I've actually encountered in my career, and it's something that usually InfoSec folks don't think about, because it just doesn't cross their desk a lot. It's part of marketing. The accounts maybe have been there for a long time. They have their own process, but it's good to educate those departments if they're not practicing good cybersecurity policy. So one of the things that you should do is use a tool that aggregates all of your social media accounts into one thing. There are multiple tools out there like Buffer or Sprout or eClincher, and so that you can load all of your accounts like for meta for instagram whatever twitter included and put these in these in an aggregated account and you post from there the beauty of that is that most of those have an enterprise type platform where you can use sso so you can federate it with your identity provider which of course you would have mfa enabled for and that way also, when you turn off or offboard that employee, they lose access to the platform and they never had native access to your social media accounts. So, it's good to do a review of what social media accounts people have and how those passwords and everything are stored. I've been in organizations where there have been multiple regional social media accounts, like, say, one for a specific country because they have different branches and they do different marketing for say Spain or Germany and so they have a company Twitter account or a company Instagram just for that country and they have country managers that manage that but then what happens is if they have a phone number associated with that account a lot of times it's the person who set up the account and if that person leaves the company now that phone number is still associated with the account and sometimes you can't recover the account so couple of things again, like number one, you want to remove the phone numbers and you can do that nowadays from several of the social media accounts. Remove them so that number one, if, if the employee leaves, you don't have to worry about trying to recover the account. And two, you can avoid like a common SIM swap attack as well. And then that password username combination should be put into some sort of corporate vault password vault along with the mfa token there's of course benefits and negatives of storing your username and password along with the mfa token but in this case i think one would argue that having mfa enabled is better than not having it and storing those MFA tokens along with the username and password in some sort of password vault like a bitwarden enterprise or one password enterprise some sort of enterprise password vault solution. So, those are a couple of things that are on my mind. Adam, what are your thoughts on this?
0: I saw some speculation and I don't remember if it was Mandiant or the Securities and Exchange Commission where they tried to blame like changes in X's the company formerly known as Twitter's policies in why they didn't have MFA enabled. And I think what they're getting at is if you'll recall, X removed the ability to use, I believe it was like SMS authentication or phone based authentication, unless you were a paid member, whatever their subscriptions called nowadays. And if you weren't, then they just removed it from you. So, and there was a whole bunch of uproar at the time among security professionals that in order to save a buck, Elon was going to turn off MFA for a number of an accounts. Well, it's possible, and this was speculative, that maybe that exact scenario did indeed come to fruition where MFA was enabled because an account wasn't a paid account and uh, now it was single factor and then it was able to be brute forced. And I, I forget which one it was, Andy, but it it doesn't really matter. I, either way, that's a, a good thing to go check. And actually, in some ways, Elon did you all a favor because, as Andy talked about, phone-based transport methods are susceptible to things like SIM swap or insider risk at the cellular companies. And you can mitigate that risk by not using that methodology. So... Again, in some ways, Elon did you a favor, but still, uh, definitely a good thing to go check if you are a premium subscriber on X to make sure that you're not using it, Um, or if you are not a premium subscriber that it got taken away and maybe your 2FA just got turned off because you're not using any other methodology. So, uh, a good thing to investigate. Otherwise, Andy, I think you nailed it. And really, if you think back to those social media tools, and you call out like Buffer, Sprout, their purpose is to create that layer of abstraction instead of using native tooling. Well, if you think about a lot of what we do in cybersecurity, it revolves around this concept where if I can stick a layer of abstraction in there, some sort of control plane that we can manage, uh, it creates potentially better security. And you talked about it then with using enterprise identity for single sign on to potentially one of those social media platforms, because, A lot of social media platforms don't support enterprise SSO built in, which is a soapbox item for another day. But if you want to do that, this is the best method. And, you know, you think about with anything else like um, laps, as an example, we all remember like the old days in which oh, an administrator left the company, well, we're going to have to go change the default administrator password on all our workstations. Like that's what social media teams have been doing as people leave social media jobs for a while is crap. We got to go rotate the Twitter password and change the MFA configuration away from their phone. And if we create that layer of abstraction, we prevent that fire drill. Oh, they don't work for us anymore. Cool. We'll cut off their access to buffer and move on with life. Much better, much more secure. So this is something You know, it may not be quote unquote mission critical, but it's one of the most visible aspects of your organization. And so being extra buttoned up on security here is probably really important. And probably the teams you're working with, cybersecurity is not always top of mind for them, but should be just like with executives to where it's an extremely attractive target. So I think you nailed all the the highlights here and it does go to show. I mean, it can literally happen to anyone. Mandian is a security company and a darn good one at that. Uh, definitely have a lot of respect for what they do. And even they got bit here. So make sure you're buttoned up on social media.
1: You remember a few months ago, 23andMe was quote unquote breached. And the way that they were breached was through credential stuffing. So, a bunch of passwords and usernames from maybe other sites were then used to stuff 23andMe's user base. And 23andMe had this particular feature where if you enabled it, it would link you up with other people who were similar ethnicity or race or, you know, from where you come from. And in reality, 23andMe wasn't breached from a security standpoint. Their users were breached because it was a credential stuffing attack. So now 23 Me is facing 30, more than 30 lawsuits from its victims due to that. And they're really deflecting the blame to the victims because they're saying, hey, you should have had MFA enabled for your account. So I think this is more of a lesson. And we had touched on this when we broke the news of the initial data breach that if you are handling sensitive information specifically for customers, not necessarily your sensitive information from a company standpoint, right? 23andMe has a lot of their customers' data, which is very sensitive. It's hereditary. It's DNA. It's immutable. (laughs) Immutable data, right? This is where you should make the decision to force MFA. If you create an account here, hey, by the way, there's sensitive data involved. Please associate at a bare minimum, maybe even just a phone number with MFA. So, and maybe something like in the future, hopefully like pass keys so you can get rid of passwords. But at the very minimum, the tyranny of the default should be MFA because we all know in cybersecurity, if it's not turned on, there's a very small percentage of people who are actually going to go and seek that setting the majority of people are just going to go on with life put in something that they know already their email address and maybe a variation of some password that they've already memorized and just move on and so at this point it should be pretty much the default that if you're doing something like this banking healthcare you know force your users to enable mfa that should be built into your application.
0: Andy, who is the common blog writer uh, for Microsoft's identity platform? Alex Weiner. I, I answered my own question as I was talking through it. Alex Weiner has written a number of articles recently about some changes Microsoft has made to enforce more strict defaults on enterprise identities. And, quick side note, Andy and I both work for Microsoft in our security business in field sales. And Alex Weiner, one of the things he talked about in this move to do more default enforcement on enterprise identities was to go back in time and talk about the successes of hardening the consumer identities for Microsoft, what's known as a Microsoft account. You use it for things like Skype or Xbox or Microsoft 365 for families as a couple of examples. And he talked about how internally there was great pushback in doing things like requiring multi-factor authentication, requiring additional factors of verification before allowing identities to be created or used. And ultimately the decision won out that there would be enforcement of multiple factors and verifications and all of that goodness that we know and love today. And most of the concerns from the pessimists did not come to pass in terms of impacting user signups or impacting active users or any of those other metrics to track. Was this pushing people away? And I bring that up because I am sure there was a debate internally at 23andMe about this. And I think the capitalists won where their concern was any friction in the authentication process is going to cost us customers and therefore money. So although we would love to secure this more, our ultimate responsibility to the gods of capitalism dictate that we should streamline this process and remove any friction that can come from it. And I think ultimately they failed their responsibility and are now reaping the consequences of it because you do have to prevent risk in your business too, at the same time as maximizing profit. And so uh, capitalism still wins here um, for making the wrong decision. And so I say all that to look at companies today like Apple, and I always praise Apple for this. You pretty much can't have an Apple ID without two-factor authentication associated with it today. What started off is like Apple really dipping their toe in the water and doing this really goofy implementation that was really awkward has matured into a really robust and excellent multi-factor authentication solution for Apple ID. And they keep almost every useful feature behind it. And so if the, as of recording this, second largest company in the world and the largest company in the world uh, can both agree that multi-factor authentication should just be standard for any identity, I think every company in the world can get on board with that too. So ultimately 23andMe will pay the price for this and that may or may not be deserved, but so be it. I think that's the likely outcome here is they'll have to settle. There will be some financial penalties from this. And if you're architecting a solution, users accept multi-factor authentication today. They really do. We have metrics that show it at Microsoft with our own consumer accounts. If you look at Apple's behavior and services and growing their services business has been Essentially, the number one focus of that company for the last five years, if you think the Apple ID was friction to consuming more services, it would not have gotten approved. They probably have metrics as well that say this isn't really a problem. So I think you're running out of excuses. When you get pushback internally to your company, it's it's assumptions about your users that are honestly insulting at this point because people... Even non-technical people are more than capable and more than willing to configure multiple factor authentication for almost anything they do. And in fact, I think they're beginning to expect it. And when you don't ask for it, even non-technical people get a little suspicious around it. Whereas the kids would say, sus. So just do the thing and harden those identities and move on with life. And you will be better for it in the long run and avoid your day in court. Speaking of
1: identity architecture, I came across something, which is our last topic for today, that I wanted to share with our listeners because I learned something. And so when I learn something, I usually think maybe my listeners might learn something. So. Mm There is a new feature within conditional access. And I say new feature, but it's more like an application that I think was added in. And so when you scope conditional access policies, part of that is you have to select the app that is associated with that conditional access policy. And Microsoft is actually continually adding applications to that list. Like many years ago, There was only Exchange, and then they added an app for Office 365, which included Teams, and then Azure wasn't part of it, and then they added the Azure management interface or portal as a specific app that you could add a conditional access policy to. And now they added something, and I don't know how long it's been there. I just saw it come through my Twitter feed, but I think it's a really interesting application to come through because now it opens up some more options to architecture, specifically guest access. And so there's an app now for entitlement management. And that is a portion of Entra that you can use for different methods. Adam, can you give our listeners like the quick 50,000 foot view of what entitlement management entails for Entra?
0: Absolutely. So entitlement management is a component of Entra p 2 And there's some additional components that are available as part of Entra Identity Governance. So you can talk to your Microsoft account team on how to acquire it if it's of interest to you. But a lot of the functionality, if you have Entra p 2 which if you have E5, you probably have, uh, is available there. And entitlements management is built around the idea that i want to manage access to groups sharepoint sites um, and enterprise applications and i can do that by building an entitlement package and a package can include access to any of those things and then i can configure policy around it how do you request access to this package is there an approval process How long do you have access before it expires? Can you do self-service renewal? Or does there have to be human approval again? So on and so forth. So what's great about it is you can absolutely configure a self-service architecture where your people can go to entitlements management and say, hey, I need access to this thing. And they can click add this access essentially. And it will either happen automatically or an approval will be routed to a human who, if they approve it, everything just happens. And so a uh, scenarios where I see a lot of value in this are anything where you may have someone in the business who needs to make a lot of changes to maybe access management for a thing. Um, and, and maybe going through it every time or your identity team is just it's it's too high bandwidth for all of those people because we just need to put the management of that closer to the people doing it. So I always think of like, I worked at a couple of companies that had internal call centers and call centers have a lot of turnover with their people. And so as opposed to the call center manager having to open a ticket every time or call the help desk or go through some sort of process to have a move, add, change, delete, whatever happen. They could just manage it themselves through an entitlements package. Really, really valuable type use case for this solution. So um, I think, I think that hit everything about entitlements management. Did I forget anything, Andy?
1: No, essentially, what it does is for the most part like you said allows users to self-service and add themselves to usually a group and that group has access to a thing whether Ooh. it be a sharepoint or a a specific permission even or an application and so It allows self-service, which takes out a lot of that high bandwidth stuff that you're talking about where someone has to approve it. Now, you could, of course, like you said, Adam, have a human approve it with an approval chain. And you can have these things expire, which, again, opens up a lot of options where people change positions or they leave the company or you want to do a review and you just want to make sure that people have the right access to things and not be over-permissioned or have too much access to all the things, which is, of course, a very common issue at a lot of companies. So think about this specifically. Of course, there's a lot of different ways that you can use conditional access with entitlement management. But one of the ways in the documentation is specifically for guest access. And we've had some discussions on this show about whether or not to gates or block guest access there's some companies who just straight up block guest access and then they have to go through some sort of kludgy way to share things some have it completely wide open some have it you know some sort of governance in between but what you can do with this is if you have access to entitlement management you use conditional access to say block all guest access to all apps with the exception of entitlement management and a specific security group that is then part of that entitlement management. So a guest would have access to entitlement management through myaccess.microsoft.com. Like you share them a thing and then they say, oh, we have to go to myaccess.microsoft.com and you can then request access to a security group that would be exempt from the block policy. We'll link the documentation so you can read through it. But when it's part of entitlement management, specifically guest access, now you can again add approval chains through it. You can also add expiration and there's built-in access reviews as part of that. So you can review the specific security group that all the guests are a part of and then figure out you know, should they have access, you can then make more granular policies and say, you know, I only want access to these specific apps, not these apps for the guests based on that security group. So when I saw this, it kind of just got some ideas rolling in my head about how I would architecture and streamline guest access through entitlement management using conditional access. And I think if you have access to that licensing or if you're interested in kind of scoping down, I I know that guest access is one of those hotly debated topics among a lot of organizations. If you're interested in kind of streamlining it, I think it would be well worth your time to walk through at least the documentation and read through it and try to understand it. And then, of course, you would need the licensing in order to use entitlement management.
0: So if you're not familiar with how Entra ID works, as far as Andy was talking about there being different applications you can configure. One of the differentiators of Entra ID versus any other cloud identity platform is that the components of the Microsoft cloud are exposed within it and you can get granular down to an application level. So if you're a third party IDP, if you're Okta, everything in Microsoft, you treat as one single enterprise application. You can't get more granular than that. So you can't do anything around, well, I want to allow access to Intune enrollment, but not this, or I want to allow access to the Azure portal, but not that. What you can do in Entra ID, is you can do exactly as Andy said, down to the individual application level. And so that's what's really new here, is a new application has been exposed. And so the concept Andy's explaining, think of it almost like a captive portal. When you go to a new Wi-Fi for the first time, you know how you get that pop-up and you have to accept or maybe put in a password if it's a hotel before you get access to a thing. Think of it like this. So when a guest identity is first created, it's going to hit that conditional access policy that says the only thing you can access is entitlements management. Well, you go there, there's an entitlement package that might be really simple. It might be, hey, agree to these terms and conditions, and we'll put you in an approved guest user access group. And we'll set an expiration of it of 90 days, maybe for kicks as well. Once you're in that group, now you get excluded from that conditional access policy. You have the access to the thing you were trying to access initially. Now, after 90 days are up, your access may expire automatically, and you have to go back to entitlement management to renew it. Just like on Wi-Fi, you may get kicked back to that captive portal after so many days where it forgets your MAC address and you have to re-approve it and then it remembers your MAC address for a period of time. Very similar concept here. So almost think of it as like that captive portal where you have to maybe accept terms and conditions or you might need a human to approve it or whatever before you pass through that gate. And now you're subject to the rest of the security controls that are in place, the rest of the access management controls that are in place. Because as I always point out, guest users by default in entry ID, they don't have access to anything interesting or useful. So it's not like guest users really represent this major security issue. However, it's just organizations sleep better at night if they have at least some semblance of governance around it. They know how long they've been out there. They know inactive identities have been purged or or at least disabled. And this is a really simple way to get to that state by stitching together a simple conditional access policy and a simple entitlements management package as one example. And you don't have to use this for the guest user's use case that Andy talked about, but that's a really interesting one, a really simple way to start wrapping some governance around guest users and not have it be the complete wild wild west so a great starting point for sure but always exciting when new applications come to conditional access because it does enable new workflows kind of like this where you can really restrict access down to one thing and then kind of open it up as process is followed so really interesting stuff here
1: Yeah, I love your example because for me, it speaks to me as an identity admin, previous identity admin. And I think any identity admin has a little bit of OCD tendencies where you just want to make sure everything's buttoned up and cleaned up. And so that 90-day expiration date where you just know that they don't have access after that is just a nice clean break. You know, if they're not active for 90 days, they would have to re-up and you know, reaccept if they wanted access again to
0: your organization. It's kind of like the, on, on all the streaming sites here, are you still watching? Mm-hmm. It's like, Hey, do you still need access? I mean, that's cool. If you do just click here and we'll get you going again. But if you don't, then we're going to cut you off here after 90 days. I mean, that's super simple. And just again, gives you those warm fuzzies that, you know, anyone who's not active doesn't have an identity out there that can be used. Yeah.
1: Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for watching and listening as always. Our contact information as well as the links to the topics that we talked about this week will be in the show notes. Please reach out if you have any topics you want us to talk about in the future or questions about the show. Thanks. We'll talk to you
0: guys next week.